Well, good morning. Welcome. As you probably know, my name's Dustin. I know it's probably hard to recognize me without the guitar and the microphone, but uh, I am Dustin Hacker, the worship leader, as Aaron said, here at Crossroads. Um, it was funny, I came in this morning, and uh, we, have a, we have this order of service that we walk through. It's got each of the elements of the service on there, and the song we just sang is named Jesus, and just, it's just named Jesus. So I looked, and I was like, great, I'm coming up right after Jesus. How am I going to follow this act? This is ridiculous. I can't do that. But uh, anyway, I'm really excited to be here, part of Six Preachers. It's a fun thing we get to do, uh, bring up some Trinity guys to preach, and I'm really happy to be here to be able to preach uh, this morning. And as Aaron said, we're going to be continuing our Luke series, Luke chapter 22. Um, it's the story where Peter denies Jesus. That's what we're going to be looking at. Um, And I want to take a minute just to catch us up with where uh, we've been, kind of where we're at in the book of Luke. If you break Luke up into three acts, right? In the first act, Jesus begins his ministry, teaching, healing, proclaiming the kingdom. In the second act, Jesus starts going to Jerusalem. And then in the third act, which is where we are, Jesus arrives in Jerusalem with all the disciples, and he's kind of doing the same ministry of teaching and healing and proclaiming. So that's where we've been for the last uh, several weeks now. Pastor Mike was talking in, in chapter 21, uh, where Jesus is talking about hard times and trials and tribulations to come, which leads us right up to this passage where we are, um, at the Last Supper. And Pastor Mike preached about that about two weeks ago. We're at the Last Supper. That's where Jesus and his disciples celebrated the Jewish tradition of Passover, right? Um, if you don't really know what the Last Supper is, just kind of think of that Leonardo da Vinci painting, right, with Jesus in the center and all the disciples are like leaning weirdly around him. That's the Last Supper. That's where we are right now. Um, and that's where we get our tradition, uh, ordin- the ordinance of communion from, right? That's what Pastor Mike talked about two weeks ago, but we're still in that scene in the book of Luke. We're still in the scene where we're at the Last Supper. They're celebrating the Passover meal, and Jesus is talking to his disciples. And the passage we're looking at, Jesus starts talking to Peter. And I'm going to read that for us. Uh, The first passage we see is uh, verses 31 through 34, and then we're going to move on to 54 through 62. So buckle up, because I get to preach two sermons this morning. (laughs) That's the double duty here. But no, we're going to to start with 31 through 34. Let me just read that for you. You uh, um, If you have a Bible, feel free to open it up. If you have a phone or any other kind of tablet or phablet, feel free to bring it up in that as well. And uh, just follow along with the story here. Simon, Simon. Behold, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And Peter said to him, Lord, I am ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. But Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. All right, well, there's a lot there, but basically what we're going to do this morning is walk through the text, kind of phrase by phrase, kind of get a grip on what's happening in the story, and then we're going to move on to what, what this means for us. So Jesus is talking directly to Peter here. Simon is just another name for Peter. He says, Simon, Simon, and that repetition of his name kind of clues us in. Something important is being talked about here. Jesus is really emphasizing to Peter, listen, listen to me. And he tells him that Satan has demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat. Now, who is Satan? Where where, where, where have we seen Satan before? Well, actually, all the way back in Luke chapter 4, we see Satan test and tempt Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. Um, so that was all the way back in, in Luke 4. But from elsewhere in the Bible, we get a picture of Satan uh, from the book of Job. We know that he tested Job and tested his faith, um, just like he tried to test and, and, and tear away Jesus' faith back in Luke 4. 
So that's what we're dealing with here. Satan is someone who likes to test and tempt people's faith, right? And it says that Satan has demanded to have you. So we don't really know what that means yet. We don't know what he's doing here, what Satan's up to here. But being demanded for by Satan is not a good thing. Um, he's, he's the tempter, the tester of faith. And I need to say another quick note, actually, on the word you in this first verse. Uh, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, some translations clear up this confusion right away. Okay, they just, they just have a, a different word here. But we need, to, we need to have a quick note on this. If you were from first century Jerusalem, you would have no confusion. Or if you were like my fiancé from Georgia, there would also be no confusion here. If she tran- the, the Rebecca standard version of this verse would be, Behold, Satan demanded to have y'all that he might sift y'all like wheat. It's, it's, it's actually a plural you here, right? It's, he's talking to Peter. He's addressing Peter, but he's really talking to all of the disciples that are there at the Lord's Supper. So that's important to know. Talking to Peter, but talking to all the disciples as well. So he says, Behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What does that mean to be sifted like wheat? What is sifting? What is sifting like wheat? So to sift something is really to sort through um, and try to find and pick out a specific object or thing, right? Uh, the, the analogy that I thought was if you ever uh, play with your kids or, or for me, my nieces and nephews, I play with them sometimes with their Legos. And you get these bins of Legos, and there's just tons of Legos in there. And you're trying to build something, and you're trying to find that one like two-by-two two piece and you've seen 2,000 of them like five minutes ago, but you just cannot find And so you're digging around. You're sifting. You're sifting through the Legos. You're trying to find that one little piece. So that's what that sifting is in general. But being sifted like wheat is actually a different image here that Jesus is using. To sift wheat back in the day, what they would do is they'd go out and they'd thresh the wheat. They'd bring it in. They'd put it in this big hopper. And they'd use like a giant millstone and grind it down. They'd pulverize the wheat, and they'd get it down to this fine powder, and then they'd put that into a sieve, into a sifter, and they'd shake that up to try to separate the flour from the rest of it, which is useless, which is the chaff, right? So the process of sifting wheat is, it looks actually very different. It's this kind of almost violent process of grinding down the wheat and shaking it up and, and separating it out. So we get a little bit clearer picture of what Satan's up to here. He's going to be sifting the disciples like wheat. And that falls right in line with what we know of him from the rest of Scripture, right? Satan likes to tempt and test and try people, try to pull them away from their faith. He's trying to sift the disciples from their faith. He's trying to pull them apart. Now, the next verse we see that Jesus says, But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, again, if you were first century Jew or you were from Georgia, you would know right now that they've switched. They've switched back into the singular you. And again, some translations, I think the NIV, they already make this switch for us. They see you, you all and then you. But in verse 31, it's plural. And in verse 32, it's, it's singular. So he's talking now directly to Peter, saying that, when you've, saying that he's prayed for him, that his faith may not fail. And that when he turns again to strengthen his brothers. So we see that Jesus prays for Peter, specifically, that his faith isn't going to fail. And we also see that he says, you're going to turn again. Now, this might be obvious, but it's important to note that Peter turns again implies that he turns away at some point, right? For him to be turning back and strengthening the brothers implies that he's going to be turning away. And this is really important to, to point that out, because Jesus is just assuming this fact, right? That, that wait, Peter, no, you're, you're going to turn away, but when you come back, you're going to strengthen the brothers. 
Now, let's move on here to verse 33 and 34. I'm going to read those again for us. So, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, no, Lord, I'm ready to go with you, both to prison and to death. But Jesus says, no, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Now, before we kind of focus up on this, we need to get a little bit clearer picture, I think, of who Peter is. I think all of us probably can't name all the 12 of the apostles of disciples, right? But uh, we can probably all name Peter. Peter's a big deal. He's, he's a very well-known disciple. St. Peter, the apostle Peter, right? We know, we know of him. We know, we know who he is. But he, he really was one of the closest disciples to Jesus, if not the closest. Jesus kind of had increasing kind of rings of relational closeness in the people that he was with. There were these big crowds that would follow Jesus wherever he went as he taught and proclaimed and healed people. He would always gather big crowds of people. But then there was a tighter group of followers or disciples of Jesus. And that could be as big as we see earlier in Luke, actually, there's 72 disciples that go out and do some ministry. And they're, they're, they're actually teaching and healing in Jesus' name. And then, of course, we know there's the 12. That's Jesus' close, tight-knit group of disciples, the 12 closest disciples. But even among the 12, there's this inner ring of three disciples that's consistent throughout all the Gospels, and that's Peter and James and John, right? And Peter, is he kind of has a specific and special uh, character throughout all the Gospels. He's a very confident and very loud-mouthed disciple of those three special disciples. Also, a quick side note. James and John are also called the Sons of Thunder, which when I was 14, I thought was awesome and would make a great band name. But the Sons of Thunder never took off, so I am here before you today preaching. It's fine. Um, But Peter, James, and John, really close. And uh, what we see is that actually... Peter's the big, the one with the biggest mouth of all these three, and he's with Jesus in a lot of special circumstances. They go to the mountain uh, for Jesus' transfiguration, where you see that Jesus is actually the Son of God. Peter's there. They go into this ruler's house where Jesus heals his daughter and actually brings her back from the dead, and Peter's there too. And Peter, really importantly, is the first disciple to, to recognize Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah, the one sent from God, the promised one. So we see that he's really important, and of course... It's, his name itself is actually very significant. So I, I mentioned before, Simon was his given name, right? Jesus actually addresses him as Simon here. But Jesus later renames him Peter. And Peter means rock, means the rock, which again is pretty awesome. So you got the rock and the sons of thunder. Um, <clears throat> but Peter is the rock. Jesus actually tells him that, Peter, you are the rock on which I'm going to build my church. So not only is Peter this kind of confident guy and and a really close disciple throughout all the Gospels, but Jesus actually recognizes him as the rock on which he's going to build his church. Jesus is affirming Peter um, and the importance of Peter in the future life of the church, right? So we we need to get this clear picture because I think it helps make sense of what Peter actually says in verse 33 because it's, it's a pretty boastful claim here. Jesus says, it's Jesus talking here, and he says, you're going to turn away, but when you turn back... Strengthen your brothers. And Peter says, no, Lord, no. I'm, no, I'm not going to turn away. I'm going to follow you to prison and to death. Right? This is a really big claim. Like, whoa, Peter. This is, this is some serious claims you're making here. And Jesus says, no, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times you know me. Right? Now, before we transition 
to the next passage we're looking at, which is the actual account of Peter denying Jesus. Um, I want to take another quick minute and talk about faith. What, kind, what are we talking about in this passage, really? Well, we already know that, that Jesus is praying for Peter's faith, that it won't fail. But what kind of faith are we dealing with here? What is being tested? What is being talked about, really, in this first part of the passage? Well, this kind of faith that they're talking about isn't just the intellectual, kind of like head-level uh, idea of faith. That's kind of our common idea or, or understanding of what faith is. Uh, from uh, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, uh, this is the definition they give for faith. It's a strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion. Which so that's fair. That's part of what faith means. Or we could go with Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, a biblical definition that says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. Great definition, but not, doesn't really get at the kind of faith we're talking about here. The kind of faith we're talking about here is a total and absolute belief in or commitment to something or someone. It's, it's a kind of, of belief that changes the way you act. It's the kind of trust in something or someone that actually changes and shapes the way that you live. That's the kind of faith that we're dealing with here that is being tested by Satan and that Jesus is praying for, and even that Peter is boasting in, right? Peter here is not saying, Lord, I'm going to continue to believe that you're the Christ and the Messiah and, you know, in, in, in God and in all the law. And No, he's not saying that. He says, no, Lord, I'm ready to go with you. I'm ready to go with you to prison and to death. So that's the kind of faith we're dealing with. Now, we're going to change scenes now to the second passage, 54 through 62. Still walking through the story. This one kind of clips along a little bit faster. But between these two passages, a couple things happen. Right there at the Lord's Supper, Jesus is talking to Peter and the disciples. And then they, they, they get up and they go actually to the Mount of Olives. And on the Mount of Olives, Jesus is praying. He instructs the disciples to pray. And while they're there, Judas comes with some of the authorities and rulers of the temple. And they arrest Jesus. And they take him. They're going to be taking him to the high priest's house. And the reason why they're doing that is because they want to bring charges, formal charges against Jesus for all of his teaching that they are very upset with at this point. And hopefully arrest him and give him a trial. That's what they want to do. So they're taking him to the high priest's house. That's where they're going. They're on the way there. And that's where our story picks back up. Okay? So I'm going to read it again, 54 through 62. Um, read it for us. You can follow along. It clips along a little bit faster. Uh, and this is what it says. Then they seized him. And that's Jesus. And led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man was also with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, like I said, they're, they're taking Jesus to the, to the high priest's house. They're going to the courtyard, and, Jesus, and Peter is kind of following at a distance. We don't know what he's up to here. 
None of the other disciples are mentioned. It's just Peter. He's alone, and he's following this group. They get to the courtyard. They build a fire. Peter comes in, kind of trying to blend in, sits down among them, and then we get these, these three accusations of Peter being associated with Jesus, right? Now, one of the things that I find interesting about this account of Peter's denial is that these accusations kind of ramp up in intensity as you get through them, right? First of all, you've got the, the servant girl comes up and says that Peter was, was with them. And that's not a huge accusation because there was a lot of people that were with Jesus. Again, he always was drawing crowds everywhere he went. There was a lot of people seen with Jesus. But the second person comes up and said that Peter was one of them. And he denies this too, but that's a, that's a bigger claim. It's saying that you were actually one of the people, one of the followers of Jesus there. And then the third person comes up and he insists and he says, Certainly, certainly this man was one of them because he's a Galilean. So he actually adds evidence to this that he's from the same region that Jesus was from. Right? And another interesting point here is that Peter's denial of it also ramps up in intensity. This last time, he actually tells this man that he doesn't even know what he's talking about. I don't even know what you're saying. So not only is it is it that he wasn't with Jesus, he's, he, he's not associated with him at all. It's, 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 a, it's a laughable, ludicrous idea. It doesn't even make any sense that I could be seen with Jesus. So we've, we've seen Peter come a long way already, just in these two passages. He goes from boasting that he would go with Jesus, even under prison and to death, all the way down to this lowest of the low, denying and, 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 and saying this idea is ludicrous. It doesn't even make any sense that he was associated with Jesus. So that's really the, the movement of the narrative. That's, that's, that's the story in these two parts. So, but what does it really mean? What is it about? And I think I alluded to this before. You can probably guess, but it's really about Peter's faith. That's really what is, is the tension of this story. It's not that Peter denies Jesus. It's not that Jesus predicted Peter's denial and then he denied Jesus. That's not the point of the story. That's the content. But the point of the story is that Peter's faith faltered, right? Peter's faith was weakened. Peter's faith was under attack by Satan. It was Peter's faith that Jesus prayed for. It was Peter's faith that he boasted in. And ultimately, it was Peter's faith that faltered. But we know, additionally, that it didn't ultimately fail, right? Jesus prays for his faith. And at the end of the passage, this is a really key verse. Let's look at that again. Verse 62, it says that Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. And this is really important because this is how we know Peter's faith doesn't ultimately fail, right? We see back in verse 32 that Jesus, that Jesus tells Peter that he will turn again and strengthen the brothers. And this is the beginning of that turning. Turning is actually a common phrase in the Old and New Testaments to talk about repentance. It's a turning back to God away from going away from God, right? You're turning around and going back to God. That's the idea of repentance here. This is the beginning of Peter's repentance. And we have the advantage of knowing, right, history, church history. Peter ends up becoming a pillar of the church. He leads the early church in Jerusalem, right? The, the church in its infancy. Peter is seriously the rock on which Jesus built his church. He's instrumental in, in the movement of Christianity starting off. So it's, it's really ironic here that the, that the apostle that fell the most dramatically and the most publicly in his denial of Christ, the one that, that faltered in his faith in this temptation of Satan, he actually is the one that ends up leading the early church in Jerusalem, right? Now, 
We can say that's what the story's about. That's the point of this passage. But what does it really mean for us? What can we take away from this story? What can it tell us today um, for each of us? As we leave here, where, what can we walk away with? What can we learn from this? How can this change and impact our lives? And I want to give us three things that this story tells us, this, this story teaches us about our faith. The first one is that there's a fight going on for our faith, right? We see that in verses 31 and 32. The testing of the disciples by Satan that starts here, it, it, it continues until the, until the present day, really. And that's what Pastor Mike was actually preaching about back in Luke chapter 21. Jesus was talking for, for very long segments of that chapter about how trials are coming, hard times are coming, a time of testing, and that the disciples are to pray for endurance, and they're supposed to hang on, and it's going to be really hard. And, and Mike talked about that. And what he said was that time period, these, these end days that Jesus is talking about, when all this hardship is coming, is basically everything from Jesus' arrest all the way until he returns again. And so we're living in that time now, and that time started back in, in this passage where we're looking at right now when Jesus is arrested, and we know he goes on to trial and to die, but to rise again. This whole time period is this time of testing and hardship. So there's this fight going on for our faith. But an important note about this, about this fight for our faith, even though we know that the devil is real, that Satan and his allies are real, and they do fight to try to tear our faith away, it doesn't always look like this kind of supernatural involvement that you might think when you think about Satan or the devil, right? Even when you look at the account of Peter's denial, you don't see Satan enter into the narrative. Peter's just asked three simple questions. Weren't you with Jesus? Didn't you know him? Weren't you associated with him? And that's really the way it is for us a lot of the times when our faith is contested. When the world is is kind of pulling on our faith and twisting it and turning it and trying to pull us away from it. It doesn't look like this big supernatural event. It really looks like this kind of almost ordinary everyday. Weren't you? Aren't you associated with Jesus? But for us in our current culture, we know that that carries with it a lot of connotations. It can be really hard to stay strong in our faith. Our current cultural narrative says that we can kind of define everything for ourselves, right? We can kind of take our own understanding of the world and define how we want to live and what's right and what's good. And so it's hard to live in that kind of a culture when we know that there's a God who has defined everything already. He's created everything, and he has a plan and purpose for all of us and everything and how things should work. And so living that out and proclaiming that in our lives and holding true to the Bible's hard teachings on these things can be a really hard fight for our faith and can cause us to kind of have periods of doubt and testing. There's a commentator that says, a writer here on this passage, he says that um, many choose this option of denial because they do not want to be associated with a religion sneeringly dismissed as naive, archaic, and behind the times, or only for the gullible. It can be a really struggle to, to hold on to our faith, and there is a fight for our faith. But another thing we learn from this passage, verse 32, Jesus is our advocate in this fight, right? We have Jesus as our advocate. Yes, in this passage, he's interceding for Peter specifically. But actually, uh, in, in, in Romans, I want to read just a part of this passage in Romans. It's not just for Peter that, Je- that Jesus prays. We see in the Gospels, he prays for the rest of the disciples. He prays for all who will follow him in John 17. But here in Romans 8, this is what Paul writes about Christ and about hard times and about hanging on in the faith. He says that if God is for us, who can be against us, right? 
Who shall bring a charge against God's chosen? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. It's Christ that is still interceding for us, the risen Christ at the right hand of God. He's not just interceding for Peter here in this passage. He went on, he died, and he rose again, and he's at the right hand of the Father, and he still intercedes for those who have faith in him. Our faith is contested. There's a fight for our faith, but Jesus is our advocate. And Paul says of this, that because those of us who are found in Christ have this this foundation, this security in Christ, This is what Paul says. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And he says, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's the security we have in Christ. Even though there's a fight for our faith that's going on and it's real. And it can be really hard to live out our faith as Christians. Christ is our advocate. He fights for us. So that's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn is that we can't rely on ourselves. We cannot rely on our own strength in this fight. In verse 33, right, Peter, Peter is boasting here of following Jesus. Out of all the disciples, Peter had the most reason to be boasting. We talked about this before. He's the rock. He's the one on which Jesus is going to build his church. He's the big deal disciple. He's kind of the right-hand man to Jesus in a lot of ways. So he had, the, he had the most reason out of anyone to be boasting that he's going to be doing these things, going to prison and even dying for Christ. But I think that there's a sad irony here. Peter isn't really expressing his devotion and faith in Christ in verse 33. He's expressing faith in himself in verse 33. He's saying, no, Lord, I am going to go with you. I will go with you, and I will go to prison and to death if, that, if I have to. He isn't saying that I'm going to rely on you to give me strength for whatever it is that you will bring my way. Jesus isn't asking him here to go to prison and to death. But Peter still boastfully says, no, I'm not going to turn away. No, I'm going to follow you to prison and to death. He's, he's putting his faith, he's putting his trust in himself here and not in Christ. And I think when we make big claims about our faith, we can do the same. We can fall, in, fall into this trap of self-reliance and it doesn't even have to look this flagrant. I think it can be just as simple as this kind of slow turning inward to ourselves. This slow shift that happens. It's very subtle. We start to rely and depend on ourselves, our own strength, our own abilities. And we know ultimately that that can lead to our faltering of our faith. It can lead to a moment like Peter had where he went inexplicably from being this amazing disciple to this this person who denied Christ three times. Now, it's actually important, real quick here, to look at one of the scenes. I'm just going to mention it really briefly. One of the scenes between uh, where they're praying at the Mount of Olives, right? They're at the Lord's Supper, Mount of Olives, then Jesus is arrested. At the Mount of Olives, Jesus is praying. He instructs the disciples to pray. And what he says to them is to pray so that they may not enter into temptation. And he goes and he prays. And he comes back and they're found sleeping. And he tells them again, why are you sleeping? Pray that you might not enter into temptation. Now, this should kind of be ringing maybe some bells here. But this is what's being tempted here is the disciples' faith, right? 
they're in this time of testing. Jesus has been talking about this since chapter 21. He's been saying that there's a lot of hard times coming. And so he says, pray that you might not enter into temptation in these hard times. And this is Jesus' way of saying to them, don't rely on yourselves. Turn to the Lord in prayer. Ask for his strength. You don't have the strength on your own to fight this battle for your faith on your own. And we see where that ultimately leads to Peter's faltering of faith. Right? Now the third thing, there's a fight for our faith. We can't rely on ourselves, and we have to rely on Christ. We have to rely on Jesus. We know that. So the third thing is that we learn the right response for when our faith falters from this story. We will have times when our faith falters. We won't always put our faith in Christ. We will sometimes turn inwards to ourselves. But when that happens, we learn of the right response, and that's found in verse 62. Peter's turning. Peter's repentance that we talked about before. When Peter comes face to face with what he's done, that he's denied his Lord Jesus three times. He gets up and he goes outside of the camp and he just weeps bitterly. There's no other response he can do. He realizes what he's done, that he's put his, his trust, his reliance in himself and not in Christ, and he's denied Christ that very same day that he makes that boastful claim. So when our faith does waver, whatever the, the wavering or faltering of our faith looks like, the response is is always the same. It's always reliance on God. It's always dependence on the Lord. Whether we've already faltered in our faith, we need to turn to him, or whether we feel great about our faith and we feel almost to the point of boasting. We feel good. The, 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 the answer is the same. We need to turn to the Lord, as Jesus said, in prayer and ask for help and strength against temptation. Now, there's another irony here I want to point out before we close, and that's in the courtyard scene. As Peter is denying knowing Jesus, as Peter's faith is is faltering in this kind of spectacular and dramatic way, Jesus' faith is actually holding strong and still remaining perfect while he is about to be put on trial and put to death on the cross. He knows what's coming. He's been telling his disciples for a while. But at the same time that Peter's faith is faltering, we see Jesus' faith persevering. Because Jesus is the only one who had perfect faith. None of us can achieve this. And we know that. We know that because we are broken. As Christians, we believe that the world and everything in it, everyone in it, is broken. Things don't work like they're supposed to. And I don't think it takes very long, looking at our world, to really see that and realize that, right? But what we, we, we believe as Christians about the gospel is that because of our brokenness, we're separated from God. And it took Jesus Christ and his perfection of faith to do what we couldn't do. We, we didn't have the strength to hold on. We didn't have the strength to persevere in this world that is broken and with ourselves that is broken. It took Jesus Christ, God's son, being sent to hold on, to actually have that perfect faith, to faithfully go to the cross. And God did what we couldn't do. With our broken and fragile selves, we couldn't live a perfectly sinless life, fully faithful to God. But even so, God still cares for us, and he still uses us. One more important thing that I want to mention before we close. Yes, Peter failed spectacularly here. He had this dramatic faltering of faith. But he did turn. He did strengthen the brothers, and Jesus still used him. And this is why he was able to turn back and receive forgiveness and repentance, because Jesus' faith didn't falter. It didn't waver, and he did do everything that we couldn't do in our own weakness.
And that's why we can turn to him. That's why we can turn to him and ask for his repentance, ask for his forgiveness. That's why we can turn to him and find our strength in him instead of us. Because Christ did what we couldn't do. Because it was Christ that had the perfect faith. So this scene in the courtyard shouldn't make us feel like we need to work harder at our faith and better to be like Jesus and have perfect faith all the time. No, we know that we're weak. We know that our faith will falter. But the point is, no matter what our perspective on our faith is, no matter how we feel about our faith, we're always dependent on God. Our our response is always to rely on the Lord. So there's a fight going on for our faith. We can't rely on ourselves. And it's Jesus is the one who had perfect faith. Let's continue to turn to him. Let's continue to look to him to be our strength and to help us as we live out our, our faith in this, in this hard world. Let me pray for us. Father, God, I, I just thank you. God, for the truth that Jesus did come. And he did come and he had perfect faith and he, and he succeeded where we fail, God. Where we falter, Jesus never faltered. He went to the cross faithfully, willingly, and took the punishment that we deserved, God, for our sins. He made it so that we didn't have to be separate from you anymore, but we can turn to you, God. We can have a relationship with you. We can pray to you. We can talk to you. We can draw strength from you. You, you love us so much, and you want to help us. So, God, would you help us today, this morning, as these truths from your word sink in? Would you help us to continually look to you, God, to your greatness? to what you've done for us in Christ Jesus, that we would not rely on ourselves, that we would not rely on our own power, on our own strength, God, because we know it is fragile. We are broken, even at our best of times, God. So we pray in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, Lord, that you'd help us in this turning to you, God, and continuing to remain humble and in continuing to look to you to be our strength. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.